It is 10.52 on BBC Radio Scotland now. Cast your mind back about three years and you may remember a controversy in connection with the funding of what was called a durational performance. This was when Creative Scotland awarded £15,000 to the artist Ellie Harrison to launch a year-long project with a mission statement that asked how would your career, social life, family ties, carbon footprint and mental health be affected if you couldn't leave the city where you live? Well, Ellie called the project The Glasgow Effect, widely seen as a reference to the city's poor public health, and used a photo of a greasy plate of chips in the project's imagery. It provoked a pretty big backlash online in 2016, but after that all died down, Ellie decided to publish not just the results of the original project, but also to write about the furore that surrounded it. Uh, the Glasgow Effect, A Tale of Class, Capitalism and Carbon Footprint is her new book, and she is joining us this morning to talk about it. Morning, Ellie. Morning. So it was kind of it was a double pronged thing, wasn't it? It was the actual project, and then the pro- the project sort of got, had part two, which was the backlash that came after it. Were you were you stunned by sort of how people felt about it? Um, yeah, I mean that was the beginning of the project. That was the beginning of twenty sixteen. So I was just starting out on what was going to be a year long durational performance, um, as you called it. I had vowed that I wasn't going to leave Glasgow for a year and I wasn't going to use any vehicles apart from my bike. Right. So the idea was to slash my own carbon footprint for transport to zero, yep. which I was able to do, um, and to see what 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 could happen if instead of travelling around for work, which is what I found myself doing all the time, which was constantly leaving the city yep. where I was living, what I could make happen if I invested all my time and my energy and my ideas in Glasgow instead. So that was what I was setting out to do at the beginning of 2016. Um, And when I launched the project online, I switched the title. The title was originally Think Global at Local. That was the working title that I'd used. Right. Which is a um, phrase coined by Patrick Geddes, a famous Scottish thinker, which implies that, you know, if we want to try and solve big global problems like climate change, Mm. then the best place to do that is by... It's where you live. On a local level, exactly. Um, But at the same time, you know, I've been living in Glasgow uh, for seven and a half years by that point, and I was starting to notice all of these massive inequalities in the city, all of these big contradictions in the city, which was summed up by the, the phrase of Glasgow effect, which comes out of the field of public health, which refers to um, Glasgow's mysteriously poor health outcomes compared to similar post-industrial cities in England, like Liverpool and Manchester. So I chose that title because I wanted to kind of draw attention. Throw a spotlight on that, 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 that inequity. Absolutely. And also, most importantly, to make the connections between social and environmental problems and ultimately to say that the climate emergency that we're facing is being caused by the richest, wealthiest, most privileged people in our society, but it's the poorest people that are going to be suffering as a result of that, on a global scale, it's going to be the poorest countries that are going to suffer suffer from the climate emergency. But on a local level as well, um, it's the poorest people in Glasgow that do least to cause air pollution, for example. Not many of them own cars, um, including myself. I don't own a car. Um, but yet we are more likely to be walking down the side of roads, breathing in the air pollution that's being caused by people who do, do own cars. 
And so, I mean, you, were you surprised then that by the sort of the, the backlash that you got, because what you were trying to do, you know, the best of intentions was just throw a light onto perhaps a, to- a topic that doesn't get enough um, uh, of being highlighted, which is people, uh, you know, sort of on, this, on the periphery of society being maligned, marginalised and forgotten about. And then you got this great big backlash. Um I guess, I mean, I was surprised by the scale of it, but I knew it was a provocative image that I chose and I knew it was a provocative title and I wanted to, to, to provoke a debate. I mean, that was one of my main intentions. So, you know, if I'd have just done this and, and nobody had known it was happening, then it wouldn't have had the same impact and it right. wouldn't have caused the same conversation. At the same time, you know, I learned so much from that process. On the Facebook page itself, the Glasgow Effect Facebook page that I made, there were 8,800 comments wow. posted You know, within the space of a few days and then there were thousands of other comments um, across fa- across Facebook and across Twitter and um, elsewhere. So I, I read so many of those and actually quite a lot of them are quoted in the book because I learned so much from people's response to it and you know, that was what really drew my attention to the fact that the get the core contradiction in the pro, in the project really that I'm you know I'm not from Glasgow I've been living here for 11 years now um, but I think there was a misconception that you were sort of this English girl who just arrived in the city and was having a go Exactly. Not yeah. that you not that you you love the city and you've lived here for a long time and you wanted to really focus a project on the city that you loved. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't say I loved the city. That was the issue. You know, I had a love-hate relationship with the city and the book kind of deals with that and looks at um, you know, I think a lot of people do have a similar relationship with this city and and with any city then, any place that you live, things uh, drive you mad about your local environment, don't they? Absolutely. So, you know, what I was trying to do with the project, what I'm continuing to do because obviously I still live here and that really a year might sound like a long time, but in terms of the the sort of changes that I want to see in the in in this city, which are long term changes to the public transport network to make it a more sustainable, connected, and more equal city, these changes are going to take a long time. Um, so. And you're going to come back, actually, aren't you, in about half an hour? We're going to talk about sort of the news on transport and trains that, that's, that's happened. And you're going to come back and talk about that then. But just just to wrap this conversation for just for the time being, for now, we've got about 45 seconds. I know that one of the one of the, the sort of the criticisms that you got was from Darren McGarvey. Um, but then you guys met and had a love-in. <laughs> <laughs> and you said you, you he sort of retracted a lot of what he said, that he learned from you that things aren't always as black and white as perhaps they seem. And, and you actually were inspired by his own book to write your own book. Absolutely. Um, his book, Poverty Safari, which I'm sure a lot of listeners will have read, brilliant book about his life growing up in Pollock. And that title, Poverty Safari, came from his initial criticism of my project. So I, my book is really a response to Darren's book. And I think that they're interesting kind of um, counterpoints um, and different perspectives on the social determinants of health and how a person's background can affect their health outcomes. Well, we're going to continue this conversation when you come back at 11.30 and get your take on everything that you learn from your project, especially around the carbon footprint. Uh, Thank you very much indeed for the time being. Uh, Ellie Harrison, the news is coming up next. On digital radio. FM. Medium wave. And BBC Sounds. BBC Radio Scotland.
11.36 on BBC Radio Scotland. Well, Abellio ScotRail's contract to run train services in Scotland will end early, Transport Secretary uh, Michael Matheson has announced. The Dutch firm has been running the franchise since 2015, but had faced criticism over cancellations and performance levels. The contract, worth more than $7 billion over 10 years, was due to last until 2025. Uh, he told MSPs he was looking at other options for the future, including the franchise being run by the public sector. That was his announcement to Parliament yesterday. We are not satisfied that the significant increase in public subsidy that would otherwise be required would generate commensurate benefits for passengers, communities and the economy. As such, we do not consider that rebasing would secure the delivery of the policy objectives that underpin the current franchise. I can confirm that I have today issued a notice to inform Abellio ScotRail of the decision. Therefore, the current franchise agreement is expected to come to an end in March 2022. So, is it time to renationalise the railways? Joining me this morning, I should say rejoining me this morning from a chat that we had a little earlier on, uh, Ellie Harrison, uh, who uh, ran the controversial Glasgow Effect project and a year of zero carbon transport. Thanks for coming back or, or hanging around for us, Ellie. That's we, okay. we appreciate it and we'll get your point of view uh, in just one second. Uh, we also have joining us uh, a, a railway journalist, Philip Hay. Good morning, Philip. Hello. And um, Rachel Jackson, train user. Actress and comedian, thank you very much indeed for for coming into the conversation. What's what's your point of view, Hello. Rachel? You're 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 the you're the end user. What do you? What, yeah, what? I mean, I'm I'm on trains all the time because I don't drive. So for me, I, I basically live on trains because I, I perform all over the UK. So I spend a lot of my time on trains, and I think something needs to change, especially with ScotRail. I think. A lot of the trains don't even have plug sockets. Like this is 2019, mm -hmm. and you're paying all this money, and you can't even sit and charge your phone. Uh, the food's over expensive, they're delayed. Uh, there's just so much wrong, something needs to change. That's my opinion. And would you have any idea of what you would like to see happen? Well, apart from plug sockets? Plug sockets, better food, uh, because, you know, you're paying out your nose for crap food, but you've not got any other alternative. Right. Uh, there's not even any windows, so if you're too hot or too cold, you can't change that. There's, you know, they're, they're, they're charging a lot for pretty crap service. All right, well, let's bring in our, our, our expert, our rail journalist, Philip Haig. Philip, what do you think? Is it time to renationalise the railways? I, I'm not totally convinced that it that it's time to renationalise the railways. It, it 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 isn't like sort of waving a magic wand and suddenly all the trains will be on time and they and, and they'll all have perfect air conditioning and, uh, and and good food and all of those sorts of things it, it's 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 not a panacea the, the railway is a is a complex thing it is it is difficult to operate uh, and above all it, it can't be done on the cheap and i think it's it's those costs that have led um transport scotland and the, and the cabinet secretary to say we're not going to put any more money into the, into scotland's railways but scotland's railways do need more money if if they are to run a, a decent efficient service and what was your reaction to to that contract being effectively cancelled? Well, no, I, I wasn't altogether surprised because when, when you look at um, ScotRail's um, financial accounts, and, and they're a bit of a dull read, as you might expect, but they, their losses have been increasing year on year. So it, it's been clear that the finances have not added up. So it, 
it then came down to a political decision from the government. Do we want to put uh, more taxpayers' money you know, in, into this railway? Because they'd already ruled out other options like um, like increasing fares. So all in all, not totally surprised, but, but I go back to my original point. Somebody needs to pay for Scotland's railways. Okay, let's bring in the co-founder of the Get Glasgow Moving campaign, Ellie Harrison. Tell us a little bit about the campaign, first of all. Obviously, Ellie, you pledged during your project a couple of years ago to only use your bike, and you managed to do that, having been a former train user. How difficult was that, actually, to negotiate your life without getting on a train? Um, Well, my normal life uh, is kind of similar to Rachel's, actually, and I do spend a lot of time travelling around Mm. on trains. And actually, 10 years ago, through that experience and frustration of being an angry passenger on the railways, I started to think, well, there's there's too many private entities involved in running this network. It just doesn't make any sense. We need cooperation in order to get an efficient service. And I started to think, well... Let's bring back British Rail. Let's go back to, um, you know, a unified railway that has a guiding mind so that timetables can be coordinated and that it can be run in the interests of passengers. So I started that campaign in 2009 and actually have been campaigning for the public ownership of ScotRail since just after the uh, referendum on independence when it looked like those powers would come down in the Scotland Act 2016 and they did. So in in 2016, we got the powers to be able to have a public sector operator for ScotRail. And since then, we've been putting pressure on the Scottish government to say, let's break the contract with Abellio. They're not performing. They're extracting profit. You know, we are subsidising the, the, the um, railway by more than £600 million a year just, in, just on the ScotRail franchise and it just doesn't make sense for some of that money to be hived off to a private company that is owned by the Dutch government and is actually subsidising um, the public transport system in Holland. So, so it's good news for you today. You were pleased that this is, this, it, your pre- the pressure campaign has apparently paid off. It's excellent news, yeah, and it can't come um, soon enough. You know, it looks like we're still going to have to wait another two years before we see the back of Abellio. But the problem that we've got in Scotland and across the whole of the UK is there's too many competing entities. You know, we need to join up thinking to deliver an integrated public transport system. And it isn't just about trains. And that's what Get Glasgow Moving is about. It's about buses. We need public ownership and public control over all elements of the public transport network so we can coordinate the timetables um, so you can hop on a bus it will take you to the train station, the train will be waiting, you can have joined up journeys simple ticketing, affordable ticketing because we need to get so many more people using public transport in order to reduce carbon to the extent that is necessary. So the Scottish Government has got to get to net carbon by 2045. Glasgow City Council has promised to get to to net sorry net zero carbon by 2030. That means shifting huge, huge, huge numbers Having of a people massive change. out of their cars and onto public transport. So we need to get it all back in public ownership sooner rather than later. Philip, take us back to the to those um, those days that Ellie's referring to when it was British Rail. I remember that. Yes, dark, dark, dismal days. Old, old, knackered trains, unlike the ones we're seeing now. But before we go back to that. It's worth noting that, that, in, that in actual fact, Abellio's owners over in the Netherlands have had to put £24 million into ScotRail, which they hope 
might get paid back, but there is absolutely no guarantee that it will. ScotRail is not paying Dutch Railways um, a dividend. Um, from looking at their accounts, it's actually um, the Netherlands that is subsidising railways up in, up in Scotland. So there is no great sum of money flowing out of Scotland uh, uh, abroad as a result of the railways. So if... If you take away that twenty-four million pounds that that the Netherlands has put into Scotland's railway, Scottish taxpayers would have to be paying that money instead. So again, it all comes back to the point: somebody needs to pay for these railways. And if if you want a nationalised um, network, um, then the money comes from the national government, from taxpayers um, here in Scotland. They will be paying more for for this for this railway. How do we compare to other countries, let's say other European countries then, Philip, in, in the way that we fund and run our, our transportation systems? Well, very, very often, um, certainly across the United Kingdom, um, taxpayers pay a lower proportion of the overall costs than, than they do abroad in, in places like France or, or, or Germany. And that, and that was a specific, in this case, a UK government decision that fair payers should pay more um, as a percentage and, and taxpayers should pay lesser it, it, because they are the only two sources of money for, for, for the railway. And it comes down to a political decision, how much you want rail users to pay and how much you want people who don't use the railway to pay for it. Ellie, do you want to come back in? Absolutely. I mean, the railway should be should be for everyone. That's the problem. You know, the the privatised system has made them into what's been referred to as a rich man's toy, and we need everybody to be using public transport to reduce carbon emissions to the extent that is necessary. So we need to bring the cost down, and absolutely, we need to be subsidising the railways by a huge amount. And the railway should be, you know, they're there for everybody. Um, so we need to start measuring the amount of carbon that's being spent in our car journeys and in our plane journeys because they might subsidise the railways by more in European countries, but they've got a much better service and more people use the railways as a result. And that's what we need here in Scotland sooner rather than later. Rachel, um, have you done much travelling outside of the UK on public transport systems? Um, yeah, I have, like all over Europe and um, America as well. Um, but all this talking is making me just want to get a driving licence, to be honest with you. Well, that's, that, <laughs> see, that's not good news, is it, Ellie, for you? I mean, it's not just for me. I mean, it's for the whole, the whole, it's, it's for the whole of the world, basically. We need to reduce carbon by a huge amount, and that means massive investment in public transport so that Rachel's got the service that she wants, so everybody's got the service that she wants, so she, that, 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 that they need, so they don't need to turn to cars. And for you, Rachel, I know that you mentioned sort of the antiquated interior of the trains mm. and, and sort of the, mm. the, the, the subpar food that's on that's on yeah. offer. What's your sort of biggest gripe? Is it the um, unreliability of the yeah, of the well, trains, or is it the just, prices? What's, what's I think it's kind of all of it. I think as a consumer, you deserve more than just to be getting from A to B. Like I know that's the sort of objective, like is to just to get to get you where you need to be. But if you're paying, you know quite a lot of money you expect a decent service it's just like and you know if you're gonna if you're getting an easy jet flight they're always good but i just feel like um trains aren't really they're it's just not it's just not good enough so you, you can't charge a phone you can't get a decent meal you can't open a window you're on a late train you're talking to some job worth job worth um 
inspector because Scott Rail as well. I don't know if you've seen these these new adverts where they're like really clamping down on fare invasion, and they're saying that if you don't have a ticket on the train, you're you're a criminal basically. But a lot of train stations don't have um, ticket machines. But they're saying, oh, have you got sweaty palms? You better be ready, you know, and all this. And it's just, what, what's all this, like, all these threats all about? When mm. actually, if you can't buy one at the station, you have to buy one on the train. Yeah, what you so think? it's like a ridiculous advertisement. Yeah. Uh, uh, Philip, let's come back to you. What, you know, if you could wave a magic wand, um, what, what do you think the solution is? If I, could, if I could wave a magic wand, I'd like to see um, railway companies get much better at delivering the promises they make I'd kind of like to see them make um, promises that are more more deliverable. And when you look at um, the late delivery of some of the, the, the refurbished um, high-speed trains that ScotRail's been hoping for for years, it's difficult to know whether ScotRail over-promised these trains or whether Transport Scotland and the government pushed them into, a, into an impossible deadline. So I'd like to see the railways promise what's deliverable and then deliver it on time rather than constantly disappointing people with apologies about stuff turning up late. Stick to your promises and make them deliverable. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. Rail journalist Philip Haig, uh, Rachel Jackson, train user possibly in the future. She's not too sure. She's still making her mind up. Actress and comedian, thank you for your time. And the founder of the Get Glasgow Moving campaign, Ellie Harrison. Thank you very much for sticking around for us this morning, Ellie. It's currently 10 minutes to 12 o'clock.